Welcome to this month's science fiction double feature. In this episode, we're going to find out what to do when Watergate is removed from the timeline with author of The Rewind Files, Claire Willett. Then, Professor Michael Shudson from the Columbia Journalism School will tell us about what happened with Watergate in our more familiar timeline. Files is a delightful time travel whodunit, but instead of a murder to solve, we have Regina Bellows, junior agent in the US Time Travel Bureau, who needs to correct a time travel anomaly, which just happens to be Watergate not existing. Regina and the whole cast of characters are so fun to read, so the book just flew by for me. So to discover more about what the novel is about, here's Claire. It's a sort of alternate history time travel adventure that's set largely in and around Watergate, but also about 160, 70 years into the future uh, at the United States Time Travel Bureau. So the sort of jumping off point of the story is what would happen if Richard Nixon's secrets never got out, if the Watergate break-in and all the corrupt things that he did as president were never discovered. So um, Reggie Bellows, who's the main character of the book, is a young, like mid-20s employee at the Time Travel Bureau, and she's mostly sort of a computer desk nerd. She's not a field agent. She doesn't do the hard stuff. And she sort of accidentally stumbles upon a glitch in the system that reveals to her that this war that happened in her her universe uh, between the U.S. and China in the 1980s wasn't supposed to happen. And she sort of finds herself accidentally in charge of you know, rewinding it back to the beginning and figuring out what was the sort of origin point of of this sort of, we call them um, chronomaly, error in the timeline. So it's kind of about this sort of unraveling of this big time travel conspiracy. It's also about Reggie's relationship with her mother, who's the deputy director of the bureau and this kind of industry legend. And Reggie's sort of trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life. It's also kind of a found family story. But really, it's it's sort of an homage to always been just deeply, deeply fascinated by Watergate. It's something I've been really interested in since I was a kid. Um, so it's sort of an exploration of what that would look like in a universe where, you know, nobody ever found out that that happened, how would that sort of change the way history unfolded from that point on? How, how did you approach like thinking of what elements of Watergate that would um, tip off Reggie during her investigation of finding out what went wrong? You know, there's there's so many pieces to the Watergate story. There's so many moving parts to it. It's, you know, there's the break in, but there's also, you know, all of the stuff that happened afterwards, there was years and years of trials and hearings. And so it's sort of trying to figure out what's the kind of one slice of this story that we're unpacking. And like my editor had to kind of keep telling me, he's like, you can't like, you can't put every character from the Nixon White House that you think is interesting <laughs> into this book. Otherwise, then it just becomes like, then it's all that it's about, you know. So what I landed on, the sort of very specific little slice of the kind of the world of of Nixon's White House that I landed on is that Reggie ends up working undercover in the office of White House counsel John Dean. And I and I chose Dean because he was a very instrumental figure in the Watergate cover up. He was not, as far as I think most people believe, involved in or even aware of the fact that it was happening before it was happening. So John Dean was very much like instrumental in orchestrating how the cover-up played out. And lots of the people that were involved in helping him with that, everything kind of filtered in and out of his office. So that felt like, you know, when you're thinking about turning a historical setting into a fictional setting, you need to sort of think about the physical world, you know, like the rooms people are in. And so I thought, okay, if she's sitting in this office of this lawyer who's the person how the money was being processed and how are we covering up things with the press and all that stuff was sort of filtering through his office that she'd sort of see people coming and going. She'd be able to pick things up. Um, so that was kind of how we landed on him. But the kind of picture that I had in my head when I first started writing it was I I knew that I wanted to be working up to a point where she actually walks in on the break-in. Like she's in the Watergate Hotel with the burglars trying to, you know, figure out what they're doing and not get caught. Because that's sort of, that's the kind of, that's the sort of espionage part of it, you know. 
sneaking around at night, you know, like high adventure stakes. Uh, and, you know, I've read, having read a lot of books about Watergate, having studied it a lot, the getting the details right was really important to me. So there's lots of little, you know, little sort of teeny tiny bits and pieces in there that help the story unfold that were things that are, you know, based in real life, like the fact that, you know, the cops ended up catching the Watergate burglars because they had like stuck a piece of tape over the catch of a door to keep it open so they could like come in and out silently. And a security guard saw it, took the piece of tape off, thought it was just like garbage. And then they snuck back and put it back. And then when he came back around again, he was like, okay, that's weird. There's obviously somebody in this building. Um, So little things like that, which are, you know, like real things that happen, but they also you know, have this kind of spy element to them. And I think, you know, I think when I was a teenager, that was one of the things that really grabbed me about the story. Um, And so the sort of in the early drafts, it was like, there was a lot going on. There was like a lot of moving pieces. It was too big, which is sort of the impetus for, you know, for hiding our undercover time travelers, Reggie and Carter as, you know, she's a secretary and he's an African-American butler. And they're people who like, no one is paying attention to them kind of coming and going. So it's such a wild story and, you know, and not to like, <laughs> to get too like overly topical, but it is, it is funny to think that like when I started writing this book years ago, you know, my sort of obsession with Watergate was something that mostly existed for like my friends to make fun of me. Like I knew enough about it to be like really boring at cocktail parties, you know, I'd be like, don't bring up Nixon. Claire will talk about Nixon for like an hour. Um, and now all of a sudden, now that the United States is sort of weirdly reliving it, um, now all of a sudden, every, now everybody wants to know everything about Watergate. You know, there's Watergate podcasts and there's Watergate documentaries. And um, so it is interesting that like now it feels you know, we're obviously we're further away from the historical events of the book now than we were when I started writing it seven or eight years ago. But it feels more sort of wired into the way we look at politics now instead of feeling kind of like a period piece. So that's sort of been an interesting change as I'm working on the sequel to it, too. I knew like kind of broad strokes, you know, in general, like American history. But I didn't know about John Dean. And then I like Wikipedia'd him. It's like, oh, my God, he's real. And I love the idea of using supporting characters. It was it was absolutely brilliant. So just to b- backtrack slightly, how does time travel work in your universe? Do you do you have a specific physics that you use or theory that you use to to make it real? I do, and um, it, that's interesting that you asked that because that's actually something that for the first book we really hashed out. Like, what are the rules of you know, like how does time travel work in terms of like how it can be used in the plot. And we sort of hand waved past a lot of the, the science. But for the second book, I'm diving much more specifically into sort of learning about the the lives of the women scientists who invented time travel in this universe. Um, that they sort of in in a series of flashbacks become characters. Uh, so I had to figure out what's the science here because I have to talk about it like a scientist. Uh, so so what I <laughs> what I have hung my hat on and I'm sure a theoretical physicist would find a million ways to would find this just hysterical. But um, Stephen Hawking had a theory that he posited, I think in the 90s sometime, that like, what if all around us, you know, in in the universe, there were teeny tiny infinitesimal wormholes uh, that were not big enough for, you know, anything, even, you know, atoms and molecules to pass through them. So they don't sort of they don't function like a wormhole, but they exist, you know, sort of everywhere around us in the ether. So, so the sort of theory in the book is, you know, if you could capture and like harness one and stabilize it and expand it to a size where a human body could pass through it and find a way to sort of adjust for like, you know, the sort of horrible, you know, radiation damage, then theoretically, could you link that wormhole to another wormhole somewhere else and sort of pass through it? So there's this thing called the slipstream which is how they travel from place to place. And, uh, and it's essentially you sort of step into it and you're kind of pulled into this void and pulled to the kind of correct place that you're going. 
so the physics of it is is sort of very very loosely sort of wildly fictionalized based on that Stephen Hawking theory and and it's also very hardwired into technologies. They have a computer system called the Hive that every agent has access to that maps you know sort of lights blinking on and off of every agent all over the world kind of popping in and out of the field. And one of the things that makes us sort of an emotionally complicated thing for, for Reggie in her life is that it also shows you, you know, past time travel agents. You can, you know, you can look at the map and see 10 years ago, somebody from our bureau was, you know, at this exact date in 1945 or 1960 or whatever. Um, and and so for Reggie, whose whose father died in the field, you know, she goes to work every day and, you know, he's still like in his own little sort of way in this computer system, he's sort of he's still there. So the the other thing, sort of the rules of like the laws of how it works in terms of can you die as a time traveler? Can you return to a place you've been before? You know, there's all there's all kinds of things that you have to be really careful with in terms of the science of it, because otherwise, you know, it's so easy for a time travel story to just to have no stakes because you're like, why don't you just go back in time and not do the thing that you did? And then there's no story, (laughs) you know, so trying to figure out how to build a framework for how this works, you know, and give it enough, you know, limits and glitches and, things that you have to be able to do to use it right so that it actually feels like, you know, somebody could be in genuine danger. Somebody could, you know, like you could actually die on a time travel mission, you know, things like that. You you touched on it there. The one thing that kind of annoys me with time travel novels is that when there's like an arbitrary thing that doesn't make any sense. So like, I always thought it was odd that if you were a time traveler, that you wouldn't want to go back in time and see yourself. Because like, theoretically, if you know that you were making time travel, you would be fine seeing yourself. There was a other time travel book called The Psychology of Time Travel, which did that. And like, first time I've ever read it that they're like, yeah, let's just go back in time and see ourselves. But in yours, you have the concept of the double incongruity, which I mm-hmm. also adored because it made like logical sense to me that like, yeah, you can't go back in time because actually you'll erase yourself from history or something like that. Yeah, so that was that really came up from sort of from the idea of what are what felt like a set of realistic limits to place on, you know, like that it is that it is science, it's not magic, and so there are real constraints on what it can do. And and so so that's one of the of the main ones is this idea that you first of all that nobody can go forward um you can only go back you can't go into the future you can only go you know sort of places where you can map a kind of particular space-time point and you can't go back to any period after the moment that you were born so you know so anything sort of past that anything past your own you know natural life is fine but no one can revisit a period in their own life where they've been and and one of the things that that we're sort that I'm sort of how that will kind of come up in future books is that also includes revisiting a point in history that you visited before that's something that we're that's sort of kind of an additional layer to that you know is Reggie goes back at one point to South Africa in 1960 and now that is part of her story so she can't return to that exact moment ever again you know um so that's one of the real kind of constraints on you know on how you can use it because otherwise you know then i mean then you end up with the logistics of you know then you could have 10 different versions of yourself you know in a particular timeline uh, but yes yeah, so that was one of the sort of constraints that we placed on how things work and there's also stuff like you know, if you're bopping around to someplace that's like within a few months or a few, you know, years of where you are, you can sort of do that directly from where you are in the field with a machine called a short hop. You know, you can go from the day that you're in in history to, you know, a week later and check on the progress of what you're working on. But if you're going to a different place or a different country or a whole different timeline, then you have to like go back to the lab and they have to put in the coordinates and it's a whole thing. And you have like technical staff who just work on that and there's all the, you know, machinery. And um, so we didn't want it to feel like something where you can just wave a magic wand and show up anywhere in the world because then it sort of feels like you know then how do you ensure that the story has stakes where things can go wrong and then there are conflicts that have to be solved which is you know how you get good story it was really fun 
to see Reggie interact with kind of sexism in the 1970s mm-hmm. as well. I just enjoyed all the kind of comedy taps that happened throughout the book because of that. <laughs> was that planned or was that just like, that's Reggie, that's how Reggie would act in the 1970s? Yes and no. I mean, I, I it was very much part of how I conceived of her as a character and it also sort of turned out that like, you know, sort of more and more over the course of the story, like more opportunities came out for us to sort of explore, you know, like her, like what does Reggie's feminism look like? What does Reggie's lens on misogyny look like? What are the things where, you know, she's got sort of like an instant, hey, go to hell, you know, kind of thing. You know, she's very little patience for dumb men, which is which is something that I really enjoy about her. But, um, but yeah, but I always, you know, I always would have pictured as being like, like very much a tomboy, very much somebody who kind of like, you know, rolls into work in sweatpants with her hair wet and just sort of sits in front of a computer and does her thing and then goes home and then like drinks beer in her underwear watching television. You know, like that's sort of, that's kind of who she is. So the way that she has to kind of perform femininity to do the undercover work that she's doing becomes kind of a sort of a frustration of the job for her. But then her having to deal with men who don't listen to her or, you know, men who are like gross and creepy. There's a, there's a scene that I really enjoy with a a guy who's another real person named uh, Gordon Liddy, who was one of the other Watergate conspirators and a, you know, totally fictionalized. So I don't know, he could probably sue me, but there's a scene where he and John Dean are in a meeting in his office and Reggie and Beth Rutherford, who's the senior secretary working for John Dean are in there, you know, bringing them their lunch. And, and Lydia is just like totally perving on both of them. And for these two secretaries who like have not gotten along at any point into that story, that there is this kind of bonding moment of them both being like, Oh my God, this guy, you know, but I did, but I did find both with, you know, with, with race, with misogyny, with things like that, that I was really interested in this idea that for Reggie, and I think for a, a lot of us, like when you look at history, when you look at, you know, like when you look now at what racism looked like in America in the 1960s or what sexism looked like, you know, like in 1920s when like women couldn't even have bank accounts. And it's like very big and very obvious and you can like point right to it. And so if you think that that's what it is, then sometimes the ways in which it's more covered up or it's more subtle or it's harder to see in your own time that you can't necessarily spot that, you know, like if Reggie thinks that, you know, that sexism is like, you know, Gordon Liddy trying to grab her ass in this meeting. Um, is she also examining the fact that like, you know, like at the time travel bureau, there's this kind of hierarchical ranking system that determines what kind of job placement you can have. And if you're a white guy, you're a level one, which means you can go anywhere in the whole entire world and the world is your oyster. Um, And if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you present as like queer or like gender non-binary, that there are real limits of where they'll send you. And the sort of argument for it is, you know, like that's to keep agents safe. You know, it's dangerous to send a black agent to the Civil War. It's dangerous to send a woman to, you know, whatever. Um, But it's also institutionalized misogyny and racism. It's just sort of baked into the system. And um, so exploring, like, what does it feel like for Reggie to be in this world where it's like so blatant and in her face and Carter having to be the one who sort of says like, yeah, and also like in its own way, like all of this stuff still exists in our world here, you know? Uh, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I really liked who the villain turned out to be. Uh, But instead of asking you something that all might spoil it, what do you look for in a good villain? What makes a good villain in a novel? That's a great question. You know, I've always been, I've always been somebody who, with a a problematic tendency to find the villain sometimes the most interesting characters in the story. Like, I, you know, I think, I think Disney's an excellent example of that. I think almost unilaterally, in almost every Disney franchise, I'm more interested in the villain than, you know, than the hero, than the princess. Um, so I think it's, and I was thinking about this sort of a lot in, um, in writing this book, that it's really, you know, that it's about charisma and, and about, you know, somebody who's like, who's, who's kind of compelling in their own weird way. Um, somebody who you can kind of, you understand, like you don't you don't like or agree with what they're doing, but you're like, oh, okay, I understand how somehow you became 
the person that you became where you felt like it was okay for you to do this. You know, I like it when, you know, when you don't figure out who the villain is until the moment that you figure it out. And then you're like, Oh, it was you the whole time. You know, like I think like big obvious villains are fun, you know, Ursula, the sea, witch is fun. Um, but if you're, if, if the story is a mystery, you know, if part of it is a hunt for, you know, an enemy who's hiding in plain sight, then, then I think one of the things that's really important is that it has to feel when the, when you get to that person that you're like, Oh, okay. Yes. I see now that I have all the clues that you totally had the capacity to be this person and to do this thing. And I was just being sort of misdirected, you know? So, and that's tricky because you don't like, you can't shine too bright a light on that person. You can't make them, you know, so like over the top, whatever, that then you're like, Oh, there's something really shady about, you know, about that guy. And and I also, I don't know, this is getting too silly, but I also really, I like women villains. I think there aren't enough of them. Women villains whose existence in the world is not sexualized. I think that was something that's important to me, that you have, you know, like having motives that are not about, you know, a man. Actually, this goes true for, for men, too. I think villains, villains who, like, do what they do for, like, love and sex reasons are like, like there are like, there are definitely like some great ones, but, um, but I'm really interested in like, no, you just did this thing for yourself because you wanted it. You know, you just, you just wanted to do this thing. Like building a really compelling antagonist bad guy, especially, you know, up against a character like Reggie, you know, like who's going to be, I thought a lot about like, who's going to be the best foil for her, you know, like who's going to be the best sort of force to butt up against, you know, she's so smart and she's so creative and she's so clever, but she has blind spots. And, and the villain in this book is somebody who was really astute in being able to kind of identify and take advantage of those blind spots. And I think that's a really important character trait in a villain too, is like, they have to know the hero really well and they have to understand the hero's psychology really well. So yeah, so that was, I think they're fun. I think villains are tons of fun. You, you've mostly written plays. So what's the difference? Like how, is it, is it the same kind of process you do for writing a play or was this like a completely different animal to come to grips with? It was a, it was a completely different animal. I mean, like there are aspects of it that are, that are the same. I, I think, um, I think I'm, I think I'm good at dialogue in prose because I spent so long writing plays where like dialogues, like all that it is, you know, but, um, but the, but the way that you tell a story is so different. Like in the theater, if I'm writing a play, I am not in charge of things like what color is the wallpaper in this living room? Unless it's like, if it's like plot relevant and somebody's going to talk about the blue wallpaper later and there's like a whole monologue about the blue wallpaper, then you're like, okay, so you, you make a little note and then the set designer knows the wallpaper has to be blue. But for the most part, building the physical world is not something that you control as a writer and nor are things, what does this person look like? Again, like, unless it's, you know, if it's like very plot relevant that they be African or that they be extremely tall or that they be pregnant or whatever, you know, or that they're wearing a particular kind of thing or they have short hair or long hair. Like if those things come into the story, then they belong to you. But otherwise, you know, I mean, theater is this incredibly collaborative art form where, a lot of what you're doing as a playwright is you're sort of building a framework that other artists who do all kinds of different things will at varying points of the process step into it and you have to kind of leave them space. You know, you can't be overly bossy in your stage directions and tell the actor, you know, how to deliver every single line, you know, otherwise they'll be really annoyed at you. And also they'll just cross it out and throw it away, you know you're like the bones of the body, right? Like you're like the skeleton, but you're not the whole body and, and you do one piece of it. And then at a certain point you hand it off and, you know, you give the script to a director. Sometimes if you're a playwright, like sometimes if you're lucky, you get to be in the rehearsal room and have a voice in the process, you know, sort of be there along the way. But for the most part, the play could be getting produced by somebody, you know, halfway across the world and you have no involvement in it and they're just kind of doing their own thing with it. And so, you know, make it bulletproof. You have to sort of give them a version of it that, you know, you know, okay, any group of actors anywhere in the world, any director interpreting this, that I feel like they'll read it and be like, okay, I get where she was going. Um, and so with this book, you know, this is the first, it's the first sort of really substantial, you know, prose thing that I'd ever written in my life. 
I was really surprised at like, oh, I have to know a whole lot more about the details of this world than I would if I was writing a play of this. You know, like I have to know what are these people wearing? What does this room look like? What are the thoughts going through Reggie's mind, which is something else that you don't have to get into, you know, when you're on when actors are on stage, you know what they tell you, like, you know what they say out loud. You don't necessarily have a lens into what's going on in their mind if what's going on in their mind is different from what they're saying. So that was something that became a challenge very quickly when I started writing about when she goes back to the 1970s was I realized, you know, like I know a lot about Watergate on a sort of big picture level. Like I could talk about you know, lots of different things related to, you know, how do I feel like Watergate changed the relationship between the White House and the press or, you know, uh, you know, the different, you know, kind of political corruption and things like that. But details like what would his secretary in John Dean's office do all day? People don't always flag it if you do your job right. But if you do your job wrong, it sticks out like a sore thumb or you're just like, oh, you don't really, this doesn't feel right at all. So I had to like do a lot of research and digging to flesh out, you know, the details of that world so that you really felt like I'm sitting in this room, you know, in this White House basement office with these two secretaries and John Dean, and this is what they look like. And this is how, you know, they move around. And so you've mentioned there are going to be sequels. Can you give us a hint yes. to what's, what's the trajectory? What are we going to find out? I, I wanted to kind of expand the world of the time travel bureau a lot and particularly sort of fold in how do the international time travel bureaus kind of collaborate with each other. And, uh, and in book two, what you sort of learn is that most countries have a time travel bureau. It's folded into their government in some way. There's sort of a kind of United Nations council sort of, you know, leadership. The big story in the second and third books, which are kind of one long story broken into two. Uh, the story is that bureau agents from all over the world start to go missing. And there doesn't seem to be anything that connects them. They don't know each other. You know, um, no one knows what's happening to them. There's no ransom. They don't find any dead bodies. They're just, they're just evaporating. They're just disappearing. So the U.S. Bureau, Reggie and, and the, the crew, you know, everyone's on lockdown, you know, like heightened sort of super restricted security while agents are in danger. Um, and Reggie, of course, you know, being Reggie, she really wants to sort of get in on figuring out like, what's the thing that's connecting these agents. Like she really wants to sort of be like, like on the case, you know, on the team, she's back at a desk and she's being supervised by this guy that doesn't trust her. And she's trying to, she wants to do all the things that she wants to do to kind of try to help like solve this case, you know, before somebody that she knows goes missing, you know, and the system will not let her. And so she has to kind of do sort of increasingly sneaky things to figure that out. And then, you know, then you sort of, you learn over the course of the book, what connects these missing agents, what the sort of you know, the person who's taking them, like, who is that person? What do they need them for? And then the third book, which is called The Book of Everything, everything sort of, you know, all hell breaks loose, basically. So uh, last question would be, usually I ask what sci-fi uh, people would recommend. Uh, but in your case, I'll say sci-fi or Watergate-based books. Uh, would you recommend for anyone listening to the podcast? Great question. Um, I truly, truly believe everybody should read um, All the President's Men um, by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. The movie of it is actually also great. Um, it's Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. It's sort of a 70s classic thriller. It's really wonderful. You know, there are pieces of it that have not aged as well. Like there's things that we know now that we didn't know then about like who Deep Throat was and how these things kind of unfolded. Um, and it's a very small slice of like the whole story of it. Um, but it's the most accessible by a long shot. And and they are really compelling and interesting men. Um, I, I really like them both. I They're still alive. I still like them both. My my big kind of um, weighty research tome, which I recommend only for very advanced Watergate nerds, it's called The Wars of Watergate by Stanley Cutler. It is, I think it is like 800 pages long, but I asked my dad one time, we were talking about Watergate just like on a drive and he was telling, you know, like he, of course he lived through it. He remembered it and, um, and was like, oh, I didn't know you were interested. And so then he like went to Barnes and Noble and was like, okay, what's like the definitive, like academic 
Watergate scholar book on Watergate. And they were like, oh, here it is. So that was my Christmas present when I was like 24 because I come from a really very nerdy family. I was so happy. For science fiction, so the the one I was probably sort of shaped and inspired, just kind of the way that I think about time travel um, the most, the sort of dearest to my heart is I absolutely love To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. Um, so it's for people who haven't read it. It's a um, it's a comedy. It's a time travel comedy about sort of like harried, overworked, you know, underpaid government time travel agents who are doing this like basically are sort of used as researchers for this project to rebuild this cathedral and the woman who's kind of sponsoring it wants like every single thing down to every single little decoration to look like it did before it was destroyed. Um, But that is sort of, that becomes really the entry point for this hilarious sort of fish out of water comedy of these, these two time travel agents, this man and woman um, stuck in Victorian England and just looking at the Victorians going like, what is wrong with all of you? Why are you all so weird? And then just speculative fiction that I've been really interested in lately. I think the last really kind of life-changingly amazing book that I've read um, that you actually that you might like, I don't know if you've read it um, for your podcast, um, is called Sawkill Girls by Claire Legrand. And I read the whole thing in like an afternoon and I had nightmares for like a week, but it was so good. It's a, it's a sort of YA horror trilogy about these three young women on this remote island kind of off the coast of, I think coastal like New England or maybe Canada. But it's this really magnificent kind of like allegory for like, essentially it's like the patriarchy. It's like, it's like a feminist rage scream against like male oppression and kind of as sort of told through this sort of good versus evil story. It's so good. I'm not explaining very well at all, but it's incredible. My reading palette is like very sort of diverse and chaotic. (laughs) So like I'm never reading, I'm always reading like a million different genres at once, you know? Brilliant. Those are all the questions I have. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great talking to you. It's hard to believe, but Richard Nixon resigned almost 45 years ago after the Watergate scandal was exposed and Congress looked likely to impeach him for obstruction of justice. But other than the headlines, I wanted to find out more about Watergate itself. So I asked Michael Shudson, whose interests include American news media, advertising, popular culture, and of course, Watergate and cultural memory. Of course, Watergate is overwhelmingly associated with Nixon. But was it the start of the scandal? Here's Professor Shudson. Two ways to answer that, I think. Um, One is to go way back in Nixon's career. He was regarded as, at best, a uh, devious uh, politician from very early in his career. There were famous episodes where he apologized to the public for things he had said um, and was compared regularly um, among those who didn't care for him to um, a used car salesman, someone you wouldn't trust uh, anything he said so um and and the press in particular um, had a tough time with him or he had a tough time with the press uh, after losing the race for governor of California in 1962 I think this was told the the press you know you're not going to have Richard Nixon to uh, around anymore to be attacking um he, he was going to retire from politics. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the background of Watergate. Uh, the other way is to look simply at what happened in his election um, and re-election efforts in, in 1972. And that's where there were a variety of questions uh, that arose about whether he had violated campaign finance laws, whether he had played fast and loose with normal behavior in American politics. And then various legal actions began to come forth at about the time, but not not specifically um, with regard to the break-in at the Watergate Hotel, um, where the 
Democratic National Committee headquarters were. But that break-in really seemed beyond the bounds of, of normal activity. And when that was traced back to aides in the White House, then Watergate was off and running. So it took some time for the scandal to build. How was the kind of media reaction to the unfolding story? It was it was slow. I remember uh, not as well as I should. I think I think it was Mary McGrory who was um, or another prominent um, Washington journalist who was traveling around the country well after um, Washington was going nuts about the Watergate scandal, and she said, you know. Nobody out outside the, the the Washington Beltway seems to care very much about this, and for for a long time that was true. I think that it, it was hard for people to register that something was was really going wrong. Um, Nixon was reelected in in a landslide. He'd been vice president of the United States for eight years. He'd been a prominent member of the House of Representatives, member of the Senate. He he had been in the public eye by that point for at least 25 years. And now there's something that is upsetting the the Washington insiders who are often upset about things that the rest of the country can't bother with. Um, that, that was that seemed to be happening. And so the, the Watergate break-in was in June 1972. The, the concerns about it had zero impact on the election of 1972 in November. Uh, it, di- it didn't really become, I mean, the, the Democrats failed to turn that into um, even a significant campaign item. It just, it, it was apparently what the Nixon's press secretary said it was, which is as much as people knew at the time, which was a third-rate burglary. And it maybe had some connection to the White House, but surely a lot of people felt uh, someone as smart as Richard Nixon would not have get would not have gotten caught up in such a thing. And I think a lot of people, um, Democrats and Republicans, did have this very strong view of Richard Nixon as shrewd, as smart, maybe as devious, but at least, you know, very, very savvy. And to have gotten involved with a former um, CIA security person, uh, an attorney who carried a gun, uh, that, that was Gordon Liddy, later became a radio talk show person after he got out of prison. What a President Richard Nixon have to do with such people? Uh, it, it just seemed very far-fetched, and so it, it it took a long time to build. I I don't think it became the Watergate that we remember it as until the summer of 1973. So so he's you know six months into his um, second term as president, and that's when. Um, the Senate Watergate Committee begins to hold hearings, and that's what begins to to open up a lot of what we now recall as Watergate. He was elected in a landslide. What was his approval like when all of this stuff started to unfold? Like, again, the obvious comparison is Trump. He has like a really low approval rating. But until the Senate committee did, was he relatively well thought of? His approval ratings were fairly high. The landslide meant what? Um, he got 55% of the vote, 56% of the vote, something like that. That we we count that as a landslide here. And this was not 2019. It was a time where he gave the president the benefit of the doubt, and and even during the Vietnam War, which this was, which was a very um, bitterly divisive issue by that point. Uh, most people were inclined to give the president uh, the benefit of the doubt. You know, in, in retrospect, it's sort of hard to believe, but it was in toward the end of his Nixon's first term that hugely important environmental legislation passed and was signed into law, and there were um, that we still have it in 
it created the environmental impact statement, for one thing, um, that has been enormously important environmental protection. That the Environmental Protection Agency was started um, in the Nixon administration. I mean, he was not a right-wing crazy like our president incumbent. He he was, a, in most respects, a, a centrist. I think a lot of that legislation, what looks in retrospect like a wonderfully liberal legislation, passed because he didn't really give a damn about domestic uh, issues. Um, so he got, you know, if that's what the Congress wanted, it was okay with him. Uh, his job was foreign policy. Um, and that's what he saw as his particular genius. And in some ways, uh, it was. The, the opening to China was Richard Nixon. There wasn't some some liberal Democrat. So there was the impression that he was kind of tricky beforehand. But was there, like, caricatures of him? Like, what were the types of, like pastiches of Nixon, or do you know of any? Or did this all come post him um, stepping down as president? There, there was a, a, a famous political cartoonist, Herb Locke, uh, was the name he went by, one one word, but his, I think his name was Herb Locke. Um, uh, he, his main, primary paper was the Washington Post, and he had a famous um, caricatures of Richard Nixon just physically, um, often with a looking slightly un, unshaven, um, a bit of a, a ski jump, Bob Hope nose, uh, bushy eyebrows, and and a sort of evil expression. Uh, so th- there was a th- at least that um, in these in, in a world where they were still just learning to watch television news, uh, the, the newspaper literally caricature a cartoon um had some influence so that 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 was already part of his pop culture sense about him what was the perception internationally when this started happening did it affect like american influence or was it just seen as a purely domestic thing there was some um inability to um comprehend i think um a prominent british historian who who just um completely perplexed by the Americans why why were they taking all of this so seriously what um the british historian didn't understand was that the the us president is obviously not a king um but obviously also not a prime minister somewhere in between you know we don't have royalty here but um but the president represents not just a, a, a party, not just a majority in the parliament, but the nation um, in ways that is much less so in in the case of a, a parliamentary system, including uh, the UK's. So when it turns out that the president of the United States is hanging out, not directly, but pretty close to directly with burglars, um, and uh, having them uh, in, encouraging his underlings to burgle not just the Democratic National Committee headquarters, but Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. This was embarrassing. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's that we, we uh, the American people, feel that this is more than someone who just happened to win an election. He's inhabiting a, a home that's been there since early 1800s, which to Americans means essentially from the beginning of time. And there's there's a whole set of associations with the presidency that we thought demanded people to live up to their best selves, not down to their worst instincts. And, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember those days, not only was someone like Dwight Eisenhower, a world hero um, as a military officer and a so-so president, um, but he he brought that dignity of his past uh, to the office, and and then there was um, John F. Kennedy, um, who didn't have that kind of career behind him, but but had enormous respect for the the office of the presidency 
as did his wife, um, who cared about the furnishings and the paintings and the and and welcoming the American people on television for a tour of the of the White House. You know, the, those things were it's sort of mytholo- mythological or sort of buying into a, a mythology of American greatness, but but a mythology that we actually believed in. Uh, Nixon did not contribute to that. There's now like a whole cultural canon and I guess its own mythology around Watergate and the scandal. But do you get a sense that the right things from what was important to the lead up to Watergate and Nixon resigning are reflected in kind of the things that most people understand? Well, one thing that looks different now with impeachment being uh, a topic with the Trump administration is it it was crucially important for for Nixon's ultimate downfall that the Democrats controlled Congress. Um, If it had been the Republicans, would there ever have been a Senate Watergate committee? Probably not. Uh, would he ever have been impeached? Pro- you know, probably not, because after all, he, it was a sort of complicated matter. There were several um, articles of impeachment. Uh, not all of them passed. Even then, there, one was he was being impeached for. Uh, uh, one article of impeachment was that he had exceeded his power in sending troops or bombers into Cambodia. Even the Democratic-led House would not support that article of impeachment. That that was a foreign policy matter uh, on which they thought that you you give the president a long leash. You know, maybe it wasn't wise, maybe it wasn't even uh, um, legal, but you know that's his job. What what they did approve was was an article of impeachment about obstruction of justice. So that term, which is um, very much on people's minds these days, um, c- comes straight out of Watergate. Another one which we haven't heard a lot of yet, but bits and pieces here, was uh, the question that Senate Watergate Committee Republican Howard Baker kept asking, which is, what did the president know and when did he know it? You know, there was, there was clearly a lot of illegal actions were being taken under his authority, but, you know, was it AIDS or was it the president? And that we didn't really know finally until the the Watergate tapes were released. And I think you may have already covered this, but like he was tricky. But was this, was Watergate and the kind of obstruction of justice elements to Watergate, was that an exception to what he was normally doing as president? Or... Was he doing a lot of other stuff that has come out later that we know about that is kind of equally either criminal or undermines the kind of office of the president? No, I, I don't think there was a whole... I mean, there, there was an atmosphere around him that was suspicious. But, you know, we we know from some of the tapes that he was uh, his language was uh, abusive and anti-Semitic and just simply vulgar. I mean, that... But, that was behind closed doors uh, until people heard the the White House tapes. Um, People didn't know about that. Um, And unlike President Trump, uh, in in public, um, his language was, you know, civil and basically impeccable. He he knew how to present a, a legitimate, civically appropriate persona to the nation. So I don't, I'm probably forgetting something, but I, I don't think there was very much beyond um, Watergate. And Wa- Watergate was so su- surprising, not just because he was smart in general, but because all the polls showed that, that from the time the Democrats nominated George McGovern to run against him in 1972, uh, it, it was a cakewalk. There was, there, he didn't have to campaign at all. He was going to win. Uh, McGovern was regarded as too far to the left by the American public, including a lot of Democrats. Um, so he didn't have to burglarize the, the Democratic National Committee, or this you know, that that was only one of the 
uh, targets of the the burglars. There was the Brookings Institution was also, I don't think they were burglarized, but there were plans made to burglarize them. Not Nixon himself, but the the people who were working for him, believing themselves to be doing the president's bidding, were sort of nutcases. Um, and and so the, it, it's the improbability of it all that was part of the astonishment at the time. There were scandals in in the past in American presidency, but were they like far enough behind? I'm thinking like Burr and Hamilton. Um, was it because it was a modern presidency? We had like all the trappings of like television and kind of modern newspapers. Or was it that it was just like an order of magnitude worse than any any scandal, or it was particularly because it was the office of the president doing something like that? I, I don't think anyone remembers very well the 19th century scandals, even early 20th century. Um, uh, I'm blocking on the name of the scandal from the 1920s. I'm blocking on the name now, but it's one that some people um, do remember the name. And then it's more recent scandals people did sort of know about. Them. There were scandals about influence peddling in the um, Eisenhower administration, a key aide to Lyndon Johnson when he was Senate Majority Leader, had improper financial dealings, details of which I don't recall at all. I do remember a campaign button with instead of Lyndon Baines Johnson, it was uh, Lyndon Baker Jenkins. I may be wrong about Jenkins, but Bobby Baker was the the Senate aide, and this third one, someone. This is a pre-gay um, liberation uh, world, um, had been found uh, in the Washington D.C. YMCA soliciting for um, sex with another male. And he was a, he was an aide to uh, Lyndon Johnson. Then, so Baker and Jenkins, if that was the name, were scandals um, of some, some note during the Johnson administration. And then there were other Johnson, um, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson owned a television station in Texas and um, used their influence to uh, get appropriate rulings from the uh, Federal Communications Commission. That that was a minor scandal. It didn't seem to affect his um, person as as a as a president. That that was different with Watergate. Um, Nixon was, in this respect, there there is a similarity with um, personally with Trump. He was obsessed with his enemies. Um, or who, people he believed to be his enemies. He, again, like Trump, he felt an uh, an outsider in an insider's world. You know, he he could never get the kind of broad public buy-in that that the Kennedys, as a group, had. Um, that they they seemed uh, some some kind of American royalty. Kennedy went to. Harvard and Nixon went to Whittier College and these these were different worlds uh, and he he felt it and, and I have I have no doubt that that in in his case that that um, that was a powerful motive for the way he behaved. Um, this seems to be true with with uh, Donald Trump too, like, like Donald Trump. Um, you know, a, a slight here or a slight there to Nixon was never forgotten or forgiven. Were there changes to the office of the presidency to keep the president in check post-Watergate? And do they still exist now? Or are we just left with articles of impeachment and the hope that a Democratic Congress might do something about whatever has been happening? There were a a set of Watergate-related reforms, uh, reforms that are very unlikely to have happened or at least to have happened so swiftly and we thought decisively uh, without Watergate. So one was um, a provision for appointing a special prosecutor like Robert Mueller. Um, the key legislation about that has, was allowed to 
expire uh, because it, it set out a, a, a set of specific procedures about how you appoint a special prosecutor. Nonetheless, there was this developed a, a tradition of having a special prosecutor when there was a serious uh, investigation that in which the president or or people close to the president were um, likely to be targets. And that tra- that tradition, um, with uh, a few hiccups, um, uh, what was maintained. Robert Mueller uh, did get an appointment, uh, was allowed to proceed with a long investigation. So that that's one thing. There were other things uh, that emerged that were not directed specifically at the president, but at the executive branch. And so there was a there was a sense with Watergate that, that the executive branch had usurped power from the legislature, from the Congress. Um, so th- there was the this was well Nixon was still president with the War Powers Act limited some of the president's ability to engage in wars without congressional approval. Um, there was post Watergate in the during the Carter administration. Uh, there was the Inspectors General Act, uh, 1978, with a variety of amendments uh, that came later. The, the, there are now something like 60 Inspectors General um, offices for each one covering one agency um, of, of the executive branch of government. So there's a Department of Defense um, Inspector General. There's a Department of Justice Inspector General. Uh, I say it sounds like one person, but uh, there are about 12,000 people employed in these inspectors general offices. And their their power is to investigate malfeasance, um, budgetary excesses, whatever they might be, um, and even to recommend prosecutions um, where they felt it appropriate, recommend to the Justice Department there be prosecutions. Um, and some, sometimes these offices are headed by relatively cautious people. Sometimes they're headed by relatively assertive people, and and hundreds of people have um, lost their jobs through the work of the inspectors general. Um, major efforts at, at I mean, the one I remember was there was a special um, inspector general appointed f- to review the conduct of the uh, American military in in Iraq. The person appointed was a longtime Republican lawyer um, who just wrote a devastating critique of um, the American military and, and related contra- contractors also that I don't know what consequences it, it had ultimately, but it was it was damning. So that that also grew out of uh, Watergate and gradually what originally in 1978, I think they appointed 12 inspectors general, but as I said, now it's a, around 60. Um, one other thing, there there was a the Freedom of Information Act was enacted in 1966, was quite a weak act. It's a law that provides uh, a mechanism for individuals to request information from the executive branch of government, um, and yet it had the departments could respond when they felt like it. <laughs> um, so, in 1974, um, in the wake of Watergate, the law was strengthened to make it harder for executive agencies to avoid responding um, to FOIA. Freedom of Information Act requests. President Ford, who had just succeeded um, Nixon in office after the resignation, uh, vetoed this strengthening of the law, and the Congress passed the law, um, passed the act into law over uh, President Ford's veto. That, That was very important for making what was on paper medium good law um, into one that was actually um, effectual. It makes me wonder if that had an impact on other FOI laws and whether other countries strengthened them off the back of Watergate. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there, at at that point, there were very few other foil laws around the world. That now they're they're quite a lot. Right. So, uh, my very final question would be uh, if. If anyone wants to know more about Watergate and wants to kind of get into the details, what books would you recommend, including your own? There was a big book on Watergate uh, by a historian named Stanley Cutler, K-U-T-L-E-R, which was interesting. I mean, it's quite a good book. What's curious from my perspective or many people's perspective is it barely mentions uh, the role of journalists in journalism um, is it, more a straight political, legislative, congressional, judicial history. But it, it, it's a good one. Um, at least half a dozen pretty good or good um, biographies of Nixon. There's one called Nixon's Shadow by David Greenberg, which is some looks at Nixon's reputation. Um, over time, and and uh, how both um, historians and the public in general uh, have thought about Nixon o- over the years since he left office. So that, I mean that is somewhat unusual um, work as as opposed to a straight biography. And if, yes, um, my book is a is a curious one too because it's really not directly about Watergate so much as how um, a memory of Watergate has um, lasted or not lasted in in the public eye. Who knows what lies in store for us in our current timeline with the current presidency? Maybe a Watergate repeat or maybe something completely new. Thanks to both Claire Willett and Michael Schudson for making the time for the podcast. You can find links to the works and the books they recommend in the show notes. Next month, we'll be talking memory and Book of M with Peng Shepard. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. Thanks for listening.